Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 8728. The summer of 87. The week of July 5th, 1987. So, a while back on the logbook.com's Facebook page, I posted a nondescript, kind of ambiguous poll. Which year was better, 1987 or 1988? It was a pretty close vote. Eleven whole people voted, and that eleventh person was the tiebreaker. If that eleventh person hadn't shown up, it might have been a hung jury. But the story is that I wanted to do a summer show, a week in early July, for a retrogram in early July. And both 1987 and 88 had some really good stuff that first week of July, which is a bit odd. July is a rating sweeps month in the U.S., but usually only for sporting events and specials. It's really rare to find new episodes of network shows airing in July. Maybe not so much in the U.K., but hey, the U.K. has summer too, and people get out more and watch TV less. Either that or they step outside, get a taste of sweltering summer heat, and say, never mind that, I'm staying inside to watch TV. Or at least that might have been the case for the week of July 5, 1987. You see, 1987 is the year that narrowly won that poll, so we do that year's first full week of July first, and we'll get back to that week in 1988 at a later date. But for now, as the dog days of summer settle in, let's travel back in prime time to July 1987. It was a week when the Star Cops found their chief of police, a week when Tuvok and Mr. Belding had to stop Dr. Rudy Wells from wrecking their spaceship, and a week of werewolves. Sounds to me like a pretty good week for a retrogram. Star Cops, Episode 1, An Instinct for Murder, aired July 6, 1987, on BBC Two. The year is 2027. A man steps up to the edge of a lake and dives in for a swim. Cut to a space-suited astronaut stepping out of an airlock, journeying down the length of a European space station orbiting Earth. And he's not alone. Two space-suited figures follow silently, not making contact. They catch up with the lone spacewalker, and switch off his spacesuit's life support systems, leaving his body to drift in space. He's dead. On Earth, the swimmer's body is found floating face down near the edge of a lake on Earth. And that's where Police Superintendent Nathan Spring comes in. 
He's arguing with one of his fellow detectives about whether this is even a homicide. Every crime analysis computer calculating statistical probabilities finds nothing suspicious. And that's precisely why Nathan thinks that maybe, you know, an actual human being should step in and investigate. It might not be just a simple accidental drowning. And it might not be just a simple spacesuit malfunction. At least that's the story that David Theroux isn't buying. Theroux is a member of the International Space Police Force, or more colloquially, a star cop. He's aboard the European Space Station investigating a recent accidental death reported during a spacewalk. And it turns out it's not the only spacesuit failure that's happened lately. That has Theroux suspicious. And he's not thrilled with how casually some of the station crew is taking the news. One of them tells him that this sort of thing is bound to happen. It's the law of averages. But David Theroux doesn't like laws he didn't get to vote for, and he puts in a call to fellow star cop Pal Kenzie to compare notes and get a gut check. This thing has been happening a little too often, hasn't it? Kenzie simply reports what the computers have told her. The rate of deaths due to accident at the European Space Station and on the moon base are in line with what's expected, with what the computers predict. Theroux still isn't happy with that answer. There really shouldn't be any such avoidable deaths, and we shouldn't be getting used to it. Kenzie can't be bothered, though. She's more concerned with the fact that the Star Cop's chief of police still has yet to be appointed. She put in for the job herself. She hears that Theroux is on the short list of candidates. She doesn't really care so long as her incoming boss doesn't make her work any harder than she already does. On Earth, Nathan Spring is sitting in his boss's office, arguing over whether the drowning victim merits a costly, full investigation. Not only does his boss disagree with him, his boss wants to reassign him. There's an opening at the top of the underfunded, almost laughably small law enforcement agency called the International Space Police Force. Oh yeah, Nathan remembers. He was advised by his boss to put in for that job months ago, just for giggles. Nathan is horrified to learn that he's not only on the short list of candidates, but he's the only British candidate left on that list. And what does his boss think of that? He thinks it'd be a great move. A great move for someone whose job on Earth is endangered by the fact that computers are handling most crime investigation these days. In other words, if you want to keep the badge, you can wear it in space. But time's running out to wear it on Earth. With that, Nathan returns to work, awaiting word from that police lieutenant he was arguing with earlier, who Nathan sent to interview the drowned man's widow. But his underling's crime-solving instincts seem remarkably dull. Nathan is irritated. He tries to talk things out with his girlfriend over dinner, but when she learns that he's gone from looking forward to retirement to on the short list to take over as commander of the Star Cops, she's not happy. Now Nathan has no one to bounce his ideas off of, except his portable computer, which he simply calls Box. The next stop for Nathan is a teleconference, his interview for that job in space. Apparently filling the commander's seat for the Star Cops is such a low priority that the American and Russian delegates on the selection committee couldn't even be bothered to take part. The questions are endless and dull. To what do you attribute your rapid rise in rank on the police force? Is space exploration a waste of resources? How much more dangerous do you think police work will be in an unforgiving environment where a simple mistake can kill you? Nathan's answers are short, sarcastic, and to the point. And just like that, he's told to report for astronaut training. He's still on that short list and climbing. 
trapped, even as he's being strapped into a centrifuge to gauge his resistance to high G-forces and nausea, he's issuing orders involving the investigation into the drowning. He's still not convinced it's a drowning. And as the space shuttle he's booked on approaches the European space station, Nathan Spring still isn't sure he wants this job. He gets along well with David Theroux, but finds himself doubting this whole line about routine spacesuit failures. The less-than-helpful traffic control operator on the station chalks it up to the fact that spacesuit life support system maintenance is a market cornered by the Russian space station, and they can't keep up with the volume of service that has to be done. Theroux thinks there's more to it than that, and in Nathan he's finally found a kindred spirit who believes him. Nathan gets a call from Earth. His instincts have paid off. The drowned man's body is unlikely to have drifted to where it was found. The body was left there, moved by someone. The two cops compare notes on Nathan's case while observing a spacewalk at the station, and they both agree it had to have been a hit job. But something goes wrong with the spacewalk. One of the men outside is a millionaire space tourist, and he suddenly stops acknowledging communications. The telemetry from his suit indicates, uh, you guessed it, another spacesuit failure and another corpse floating in the deep black. But is it another murder? When he gets back to Earth, Nathan learns that he's the top candidate to take command of the Star Cops, and David Threw is second in line for the job. He too is summoned to Earth because Nathan refuses to leave the detective work to computers calculating probabilities. He wants to bounce ideas off of a fellow cop. Ideas like this. Is the crew of the European space station trying to make the Russians look bad so they can snatch away the contract to perform spacesuit maintenance? Even when it hits the news that someone aboard the Russian space station has been charged with murder by negligence, Nathan's not satisfied that the guilty party has been found. It's just someone taking the fall for PR purposes. Nathan and Theroux return to the European space station. They're both convinced more than ever that this is the scene of the crime. Nathan assigns Box to access the personnel files for everyone on the station. Who has enough of a stake in the spacesuit business to commit murder? Or is there anyone with far right-wing political tendencies? Oh, and one more thing. Nathan wants Box to transmit its findings to every computer within the Star Cops organization, because if Nathan is right, he might be on the station with the killer right now. And if they know he's poking around, he's on the short list of candidates to become the next victim. In fact, he's counting on that. It's spacewalk time. Just a casual stroll outside the station to look for clues. Theroux watches from the traffic control center, but he's still thinking over everything that's happened, and he realizes that the officer in charge of traffic control always knows when someone is outside the station. That officer, the same one who's been less than helpful the whole time, the same one who says the deaths are just down to the law of averages, has to have known if there were additional people outside the station additional people who could catch up with a lone spacewalker and kill him by shutting down his life support systems from the physical controls on the life support backpack. Just as Theroux comes to this realization, there's a gun pressed against the back of his neck. Um, isn't a gun on a space station like a really, really bad idea? Not if it's been specially modified for reduced muzzle velocity, says the traffic control officer who's holding the gun. The bullet only needs to be moving fast enough to kill at point-blank range. Say, through, let's finish this by getting you into a spacesuit. Time for your last spacewalk, too, buddy. Chances are your life support system will fail, too. It's the perfect murder. It leaves no mark on the body. It just leaves a dead man. But before the traffic controller can stuff through into a spacesuit at gunpoint, one of the empty spacesuits suddenly isn't so empty. It's Nathan. 
He knew he'd be expecting company during his spacewalk, so he took a medical laser with him, enough to puncture the suits of his would-be attackers, and he returned to the airlock to save his colleague's life and arrest the head of the operation. On Earth, thanks to Nathan insisting the case shouldn't be left up to the computers, the murder of the drowned man has also been solved. It was a hit, contracted by the victim's widow. But the investigation wasn't cheap, and someone has to take the fall for that. Nathan's out of a job on Earth, which leaves him no choice but to become the commander of the Star Cops. What are the odds that going into space to stay is a good career move for this guy? The end. And also, just the beginning. Star Cops was created and its first episode written by Chris Boucher, the former script editor of Blake 7, who had many times taken on the thankless task of fleshing out Terry Nation's thinner story outlines on that show, while the writing credit went to Nation himself. Truth be told, Boucher can claim as much credit for writing and guiding Blake 7 as Nation can, especially once Nation started getting ready to move to America. Chris was also a script editor on numerous police shows, including Bergerac, Shoestring, Juliet Bravo, and The Bill, and he wrote scripts for all of those series. He wrote nine episodes of Blake Seven, but they were among the best-loved episodes of that show, including the shocking series finale. He also wrote three Doctor Who stories, Face of Evil, Robots of Death, and Image of the Fendal, the first of which introduced Leela as the fourth Doctor's new traveling companion. He also later wrote four original Doctor Who novels for BBC Books, including Corpse Marker, a sequel to Robots of Death, which in turn helped to set up the background of the audio spin-off series Kaldor City. It was while Chris was working with Doctor Who script editor Robert Holmes on his episodes for that series that Holmes saw that he had the makings of a good script editor himself, and Holmes recommended Chris Boucher for the script editor job on Blake 7. The rest is history. TV scheduling is handled a bit differently in the UK compared to the States. Shows can start at weird times like 5.45, and since the BBC is commercial-free, they're not obligated to last a full hour. The next show may start at 6.25. Special event programming reshuffles the schedule, and Star Cops was subjected to a lot of that reshuffling. Despite some very good reviews from some of the critics, but not all of them, one didn't always know where to find the show, and that's one reason why Star Cops only lasted nine episodes. There are other reasons, too, but we will get into that in future coverage of this series. Star Cops was seen on a few major market PBS affiliates in the States, including the New York PBS affiliate. This show arrived at a time when Doctor Who had attained popularity in the U.S., which had the beneficial side effect of giving numerous U.K. genre series a second life, including Blake Seven, The Tripods, Survivors, and this show, and that helped pave the way for Red Dwarf to gain a foothold with American viewers as well. For context, Red Dwarf started just a few months after Star Cop's brief run in the UK. The American audience demanded more British sci-fi, and the BBC was doing its best to satisfy that demand. The star of Star Cops is David Calder. He had small movie roles in Superman the Movie, United, the Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, and he was Sir Robert King in the 1999 James Bond movie, The World is Not Enough. On TV, he's been in Coronation Street, The Professionals, Cat's Eyes, Covington Cross, Cracker, The Mists of Avalon, Spooks, Midsummer Murders, Waking the Dead, Utopia, and Call the Midwife, to name just a few. He also has musical leanings and composed music for a handful of UK shows and movies in the 1970s. 
Now, the show's token American character was actually played by an American, Eric Ray Evans, as David Theroux. Roles in the U.S. before he moved included the 1984 movie Supergirl and episodes of Philip Marlowe Private Eye. In the mid-1980s, Eric moved to the U.K. permanently, and Star Cops was his first TV gig. He also appeared in The New Statesman, Casualty, and The Bill, and did quite a bit of stage work. Eric Ray Evans died in 1999. Among our guest stars, we have Keith Varnier as the unnamed traffic control commander. Now, why couldn't this guy have had a name, a proper name? That really would have made my life quite a bit easier. He's appeared in Survivors, Secret Army, Spy Trap, and in roughly half the episodes of the Tams television series Gems in the 1980s. Now, we have some minor sci-fi royalty mixed in with the guest cast, Andrew Seacombe, better known as Andy Seacombe. Now, he was Nathan's lieutenant on Earth. Brian Lincoln was the character's name. Andy had already appeared in The Legend of Robin Hood and numerous episodes of the BBC children's sketch comedy series Fast Forward. In the 90s, his TV roles included Casualty and Peak Practice, but his real claim to sci-fi fame happens toward the end of that decade. He was cast as the voice of Watto in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, a role he continued to play in Episode 2 and in numerous Star Wars video games set during the prequel era. He also has an extensive list of stage credits, including Godspell, The Invisible Man, and Stags and Hens. The episode was directed by Christopher Baker. He directed episodes of Zed Cars, The Brothers, All Creatures Great and Small, Emmerdale, and Gems. He would direct four more episodes of Star Cops, so basically, he directed a little over 50% of the series. In the end credits, <laughs> here's an interesting credit. Weightlessness by Eugene's Flying Ballet. The first episode of Star Cops had more weightless wire work than the rest of the series combined, and this was very quickly abandoned. Now, there have been many attempts made over the years to combine sci-fi and the police procedural, including by some top American talent like David E. Kelly, and yet no one has done it better than Star Cops, at least not as far as I'm concerned. In the reboot happy world of modern showbiz, it's kind of amazing that nobody has revisited this show. One of Boucher's superpowers as a mystery writer was a deft touch at letting the audience figure things out, along with the characters on screen. That's a hallmark of good mystery writing in any medium, and yet it seems like it's so hard to get right. I will say this about Nathan Spring, the character of Nathan Spring. It's kind of a relief to see a space hero who's going bald, maybe slightly out of shape, and he's actually competent without being ridiculously universally admired. Nathan Spring is not a superhero. That means there's some hope for some of us, after all. It occurred to me while watching this, and thinking about the Chris Boucher-Blake 7 connection, Box is really Orac by another name, although at least the degree of miniaturization is slightly more accurate here. Orac was kind of like lugging an Osborne 1 computer around everywhere. Box is about the size of a VHS tape. If the show was made today, Box might be a slightly chunkier cell phone or maybe a smartwatch. There's a running mystery about Box's origins in this episode. Nathan finally reveals that it was a gift from his father, who was in the computer business. Although, even Nathan can't quite work out how his father could have afforded it. If there were any further plans to develop the background story of Box, who happened to have Nathan's voice and was therefore voiced by David Calder, 
they never panned out on screen. Another interesting end credit here, the BBC wishes to thank the McDonnell Douglas Corporation for their assistance, probably for the film footage of the centrifuge and underwater astronaut training. Gemini, Apollo, and Skylab astronaut Pete Conrad consulted on some aspects of the series as far as getting the weightlessness right. There are some instances of shared personnel with Doctor Who here, including production manager Gary Downey and visual effects designer Mike Kelt, who also worked on the Trial of a Time Lord space station, as well as the opening shots of the Red Dwarf spaceship in that series. The visual effects are actually really impressive for the BBC. The FX bar was a few months away from being completely reset by Star Trek The Next Generation, but it's all still very nicely done. The BBC was getting really good at this stuff about this time. An Instinct for Murder is a very good episode, but unfolds at something of a slow boil compared to later episodes. It also lacks a lot of the character dynamics that would appear later, since the character of Colin Devis, a star cop with a foul mouth and more than a hint of casual racism, wouldn't appear until episode two, and Pal Kenzie and her career frustrations only get a few moments of time on a communicator screen here. It's interesting that, as far as practical on-set effects... There were many uh, view screens seen in this episode of Star Cops, which were rear-projected film. You look at those now, and they kind of read as LCD screens. There's a little bit of accidental future-proofing. Kind of the same, the same thing happens if you rewatch 2001 A Space Odyssey now. They're obviously not CRTs, and they're flat. And so you kind of look at them and think, okay... Maybe, you know, you look at them now and you think maybe those are LCD screens, although they were rear-projected film loops. And that was kind of one of the things that really stuck out about the 1984 sequel, 2010, The Year We Make Contact, because it did use CRTs and that kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. Now let's talk about that theme song by Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues. that guy who steps up to the plate and tells you the song actually wasn't bad and it really should have worked in the context of the series except that the character of Nathan's girlfriend completely disappears after this first episode if she had continued to be part of the show with Nathan having to maintain a long-distance relationship with her between earth and the moon 
the song would actually fit beautifully. But without that element continuing past the first episode, yeah, I kind of have to agree that once you get past episode one, the song makes little sense. The answer probably lies in whatever brief Justin Hayward was given before embarking on writing the song. Then again, I also didn't take offense to the theme song from Enterprise, and geez, how many TV series get theme songs written for them by half of the songwriting duo behind the majority of the Moody Blues catalog? Give it a rest, it's a decent song. Big Finish has continued the Star Cops story in audio form with two box sets of full cast audio plays since 2018. Though only three members of the original cast, David Calder as Nathan Spring, Trevor Cooper as Devis, and Linda Newton as Pal Kenzie, returned to their roles. New characters original to the audio series were recruited as well. You can hear a free excerpt from the first of those audio stories at bigfinish.com, and we'll include a link to it on our show page at thelogbook.com slash retrogram. Twilight Zone, Season 2, Episode 10, Time and Teresa Golowitz, aired July 10, 1987, on CBS. Mr. Bluestone is a Broadway songwriter sitting at his piano, struggling with a lack of inspiration. But he's got worse problems than writer's block. There's a man in his apartment, a man he doesn't know and didn't invite. I'm Prince, he says. And then he tells Bluestone that he's run out of time to work on that tricky number for the second act because Bluestone's lying dead of a heart attack in the floor. The Bluestone sitting at the piano, that's his spirit in limbo, waiting to find out if he's going up there or down there. He quickly surmises that Prince is the Prince of Darkness, so this isn't looking good. When he's offered a chance to visit anywhere in time or space as part of the process of determining which afterlife he spends eternity in, Bluestone has a pretty specific part of his life he wants to go back to. He wants to go back to 1948, to a party during his senior year of high school, because he wants to see if he can change things around just enough to make it with a classmate he had a crush on, Mary Ellen Cosgrove, the one who got away, or so he thinks. Prince is underwhelmed with this request, and he says he hopes Bluestone and his hormones will be very happy together. And suddenly there he is, not accomplished songwriter Bluestone, but awkward teenager Binky Blaustein, and yet he remembers everything from his future. He knows which of his classmates will face a life of trauma recovering from injuries in the Korean War, and he kind of makes an ass of himself announcing this knowledge from the future. But one of his classmates brings him up short, Laura. She's very pretty, not the kind to bother with Binky Blaustein at all. She knows where the best booze in the house is, and that's not Laura. It's Prince, in disguise, there to keep an eye on him. It turns out he's not sure what he was thinking. He pined for Mary Ellen Cosgrove as a teenager, but seeing her now, he's not really sure why he thought she was all that. But who does catch his attention? Teresa Golowitz, a fellow plain, awkward classmate. And it's funny, Bluestone, or Blaustein, can't quite remember what happened to her. Prince reminds him, 
After sixteen years of feeling awkward and out of place, Teresa came to this party only to sit alone while no one even bothered to say hello to her. Then she left the party and ended it all. Blaustein decides he'll be the one to sit with her. He'll be the one to say hi. Maybe he can change how all of this happened. He's just trying to strike up a conversation when the rest of his classmates urge him to sit at the piano, tickle the ivories. Here we are now. Entertain us. It's funny how these same classmates are simultaneously making fun of Blaustein for being a show tune aficionado, but just this once he leans into it, and this brings Teresa out of her shell. Turns out she's a really good singer, really good. Blaustein finishes the song and plants a kiss on her cheek, but that just elicits some comments from the peanut gallery. Oh look, the two biggest nerds we know are a love match. Teresa excuses herself from the party, embarrassed beyond belief. Blaustein follows her out, encouraging her to continue showing her talent to the world, or else, yeah, no one will notice her. He's speaking from the perspective of the grown-up Bluestone and everything that he had to endure to see his name on the cover of Playbill, and he pleads with her to let him work with her and try to help her make it as a singer, but he's really begging her to just stay alive. She still says she has to go. Prince reappears with a reminder. Uh, remember when you asked for this, John? How it was about trying to get it on with your high school crush? You still going to do that or not? Blaustein goes and manages to break up an awkward private conversation between Mary Ellen Cosgrove and the biggest, dumbest jock from high school, the guy she would have wound up unhappily married to. And that's as much as Blaustein cares to do. He's leaving the party, and he finds that Teresa Gollowitz missed her ride home mainly because she wanted to know what time tomorrow. They can work on music together. Suddenly, it's back to the present day. Blaustein's back to Bluestone, and Bluestone's holding an LP by best-selling singer Terry Gollowitz, a girl who didn't kill herself at the age of sixteen. Prince is still there too, and he's got some good news and some bad news. Bluestone's changed history for the better, but he's got to pay the butcher bill for changing history. That isn't taken very lightly. He'll be playing piano. Down below for a couple of years, at least until cooler heads prevail up top. Bluestone's okay with this. After all, it can't be any worse than playing in a piano bar in Queens. The end. Now, why were episodes of Twilight Zone airing in July? It's because the show had already been canceled in February. When the series was revived in 1985, CBS changed up the Twilight Zone format. By airing hour-long blocks containing two or three separate stories, though the stories themselves had originally been produced with the traditional half-hour time slot in mind, but the ratings for an hour-long Twilight Zone plunged early in season two, and CBS yanked the show from the schedule before the all-important November rating sweeps, dropping those episodes in December, a month where, for anywhere outside of the largest population centers, ratings aren't tracked. Twilight Zone was back on the schedule in February for a couple of weeks during the February 1987 rating sweeps, but pulled dismal numbers again. The remaining episodes were burned off in one-hour blocks between May and July of that year, and then CBS took everyone by surprise by keeping the show alive, hiring a completely new production team, and producing 30 more half-hour shows in Canada, just enough that the magical number of 100 half-hour episodes could then be sold into syndication. But more on that another time. Suffice to say, nothing normal or predictable happens in the Twilight Zone. The teleplay for this episode was by Alan Brennert, based on a short story by Park Godwin. 
That original short story appeared in the January 1982 issue of Twilight Zone magazine, and the full title at the time of publication was "Influencing the Hell Out of Time and Teresa Golowitz." It's interesting to note that Park Godwin did serve in the army during the Korean War, so the biography he bestows on one of Blaustein's classmates here is awfully close to his own. Godwin published his first novel in 1973, and a lot of his writing career was built on reinterpreting historical figures. Both fictional and real, his books included *Darker Places*, *Beloved Exile*, *A Truce with Time*, *Waiting for the Galactic Bus*, *Sherwood*, *Tower of Beowulf*, *The Night You Could Hear Forever*, and the Hugo-nominated short story collection *The Fire When It Comes*. We lost Park Godwin in 2013. The TV script based on that story was written by science fiction author Alan Brennert, who was the executive story consultant on the new *Twilight Zone*. He had started out as a writer on the 1970s Wonder Woman series before becoming the story editor and sometimes writer on the first season of Buck Rogers in the 25th century. So we will undoubtedly be discussing more of Alan Brennert's work in other installments of Retrogram. He also wrote episodes of Fantasy Island, Simon and Simon, China Beach, L.A. Law, the 1990s revival of The Outer Limits, Odyssey Five, Stargate Atlantis, and Star Trek Enterprise. In the world of comics, Alan Brennert has written issues of Wonder Woman, Batman, Daredevil, and Marvel's 1980s Star Trek comic series. In prose, one of his short stories won the 1991 Nebula Award for that category. During his time in the Twilight Zone, he also adapted TV scripts from stories by Harlan Ellison, Joe Haldeman, Greg Bear, and Arthur C. Clarke. In addition to contributing a few of his own stories, one of which was the other Twilight Zone story that aired on July 10th, 1987. Time and Teresa Golowitz was directed by Shelley Levinson. Shelley has only a few credits on IMDb. She directed one other Twilight Zone segment and one episode each of Tales from the Dark Side, L.A. Law, and Falcon Crest. Gene Berry should need no introduction to science fiction fans. He was Doctor Clayton Forrester in the nearly definitive 1953 big screen adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. He appeared twice in the '50s anthology series Science Fiction Theater and twice in the original Alfred Hitchcock Presents series. He was the star of the Western series Bat Masterson, which ran from 1958 to 1961, and landed another starring role between 1963 and '66 in Burke's Law. Beyond the 1960s, he had guest starring roles on Charlie's Angels, The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, Crazy Like a Fox, and Murder She Wrote, and starred in a revival of Burke's Law produced for the 1994-95 TV season. His last role was as the grandfather in the 2005 Tom Cruise remake of War of the Worlds. Gene Berry died in 2009. Grant Hesloff as young Binky Blaustein was just starting to make his mark in Hollywood when he starred in this Twilight Zone episode. He had already appeared in Happy Days, Joni Loves Chachi, Hardcastle and McCormick, Family Ties, Spencer for Hire, Facts of Life, and L.A. Law. By the time he filmed this episode, he went on to appear in Murder She Wrote, Twenty One Jump Street, Thirty Something, Seinfeld, the pilot movie for Fox's made-for-TV superhero Mantis. Hercules: The Legendary Journeys, the 1990s Outer Limits revival, The X Files, and recently as Doctor Nika in Hulu's TV adaptation of Catch 22, where he was also an executive producer and directed two episodes. As the adult Bluestone, Paul Sand doesn't have quite as much screen time. After some guest starring roles in the likes of Bewitched and the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Paul headlined his own series titled. 
Paul Sand in Friends and Lovers during the 1974-75 season on CBS. And yes, Paul Sand in was part of the title. CBS promoted the show heavily because it was produced by Mary Tyler Moore's MTM Entertainment, and Sand was considered a rising comedy star at the time, but his show was a huge ratings disappointment and was canned after only 15 episodes, to be replaced at mid-season by a new sitcom called The Jeffersons. He went on to appear in Wonder Woman, Super Train, Taxi, Laverne and Shirley, Alice, The Love Boat, St. Elsewhere, Magnum P.I., Who's the Boss, Empty Nest, Erie, Indiana, The X-Files, Sliders, and Joan of Arcadia, among quite a few others. That's right, Obi. Probably the most recognizable cast member is Gina Gershon, who had broken into showbiz via music videos in the early 80s. From here, she would go on to appear in The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd, Cop Rock, Melrose Place, all on TV, with movie roles in Cocktails, Showgirls, Bound, the movie that was the Wachowskis calling card before The Matrix, Face Off, Slackers, and quite a few others. She's also done voice work on such animated series as Spider-Man and Tripping the Rift. Now, by the time she appeared in The Twilight Zone, Christy Lines, who played Teresa Golowitz, was already quite busy, though mainly on the stage, where she still holds the record for being the youngest performer hired as a cast member for Cats. This is one of only a handful of TV guest-starring appearances for her, although she's done quite a few commercials and is now an in-demand public speaker specializing in training sales professionals. I got a chuckle out of the line, suddenly we have a Barbara Walters special here. If someone watches this episode 20 years after today, say 2039, will that even make sense? Will they know what that means? Gene Berry is pretty sinister as Prince here, although I got a chuckle while reading my carefully written synopsis, thinking of what it would be like to imagine Prince, as in Purple Rain and Raspberry Beret Prince, filling that role. I don't know if Paul Sand and Grant Heslov got to meet and compare notes on their shared character, but they did a really good job of portraying the same guy at the beginning and end of his adult life, the Alpha and Omega, one full of optimism, the other full of pessimism and sarcasm. Now, when young Blaustein starts rattling off facts and figures about a classmate who will be going to war, I kind of hate the character at that moment. But once he gets caught up in the moment of being young again, he's so likable, and he seems miles away from the beaten-down, cynical guy we already met, the guy who's been married and divorced, and is convinced that no one will really miss him when he's gone. The fact that it's that character who does become convinced that one of his classmates will be missed is what redeems him. It's a really sweet story, and in the end, I'm glad he doesn't carry through with his much more cynical reason for going back in time. The really sad thing is, whatever work Bluestone did with Cherry Golowitz, it doesn't seem to have changed his lot in life at all. Maybe it's an obvious feel-good story that doesn't have much of a Twilight Zone sting in its tail, but sometimes that's okay. Zone, also Season 2, Episode 10, Voices in the Earth, aired July 10, 1987, on CBS. 
An expedition orbits a forlorn, ruined planet in their spaceship, analyzing its toxic atmosphere. Mostly carbon dioxide, methane, hydrogen, argon. Nary a trace of oxygen or nitrogen to be found. It's barren of any form of life. One of the younger crew members asks Professor Knowles if there's any record of this planet in the database. Oh yes, the professor replies. He's heard of this planet. He's read about it. He's written about it. He's never been there. It's called Earth. Humans haven't lived there for a thousand years. The ship plows through the yellowish toxic atmosphere to come in for a landing. Time for a look around, though the professor isn't even sure what he's looking for. After all, archaeological expeditions have been here, and they've already recovered plenty of artifacts from Earth. The commander of the ship, Jacinda Carlyle, tells Knowles he has only four days to find whatever it is he came to find. Because that's when the mining ships arrive to finish strip-mining this otherwise worthless planet where no one can live down to its core. The professor explores an abandoned building, but he thinks he hears a noise. He checks in with the younger members of the landing party, who didn't hear anything and they don't detect anything. When the professor looks up, he sees people, people not in spacesuits, people from another time seemingly going about their everyday lives, glowing people that he can see through. Maybe time to leave, but one of those people appears directly in his path. Join us, Professor, the man says, and when the professor looks around in a panic, he's alone. Back on the ship, Professor Knowles is still rattled by what he saw. He rests his face in his hands and rests his elbows on a control panel, and a face appears on the screen in front of him. But not a transmission from another ship. This is the same man he saw on Earth. Knowles suits up and returns to the empty building where the people without spacesuits appear again. Dozens of them. Men, women, children all aglow. The man who keeps speaking to Knowles tells him, it's okay to remove your helmet. We've restored the air so you can breathe here. And then they have so many questions. Where are the others? Is humanity returning to Earth permanently? Knowles doesn't have those answers, but he has a question of his own. Who are you? We're the ones who stayed behind, the ones who couldn't fit on the ships as they left Earth behind a thousand years ago. We're their souls, their shadows, and we want you to do what no one would bother to do before. Save the Earth. Knowles decides it's time to bring someone else into this building, so these ghostly remnants of the human race can plead their case to someone else, so maybe someone will believe him. He brings Jacinda, but no one appears, and now she thinks he's lost it. Back aboard the ship, as Knowles sleeps, the face of the glowing man appears on a screen in his cabin, and then that same glow shrouds Knowles' hand. He effortlessly breaks a metal leg off of the table in his cabin, all without waking up, and then he walks to the empty bridge of the ship, almost like he's sleepwalking, and he begins smashing the controls. It's only when Jacinda and the rest of the crew arrive to stop him that he comes to, with no idea of why he's there or what he was doing. It'll take time to repair everything, and that means the mining operation has been delayed. Knowles returns to the building to confront the spectral crowd that will only appear for him. Why do they need his help so badly? Because they can't travel through space in this ghostly form. They need a host body to travel. Knowles isn't happy about the prospects of being the hostess with the mostest ghostists, and he delivers his judgment on this man and his entourage. They lived on Earth before Knowles was even born, and their generation could have done something to save the planet, but they didn't. He invites them to go ahead and take him over. He can't exactly stop them. But deep down, he knows they want to leave because 
They're cowards. Liftoff day. It turns out that Knowles didn't do that much damage to the ship. It's time to get out of here and stop delaying the mining operation. But then, thunder? Not just thunder, but a whole thunderstorm. Water is falling from the skies, and it's heavy with amino acids and nutrients, the precursors of life. Primitive ocean life is already starting to register on the sensors. Complex cyanobacteria. Life is forming on Earth as it did millions of years before, but faster this time. Knowles suits up and goes outside, but the atmosphere has already changed enough for him to be able to breathe without his helmet. As he walks back up the ramp into the ship, he fails to notice grass is already starting to grow. The End There is so much past and future sci-fi talent here, it's hard to know where to start. But let's start with Martin Balsam as Professor Donald Knowles. On the big screen, you've seen him in On the Waterfront, Twelve Angry Men, Psycho, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Seven Days in May, Torah, 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 All the President's Men, St. Elmo's Fire, Delta Force, both the original and the remake of Cape Fear, and, of course, Mitchell. On TV, he was the first Dr. Rudy Wells in the original pilot movie for The Six Million Dollar Man, and he appeared on Have Gun, Will Travel, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and he made two appearances in the original Twilight Zone and had already appeared once before in the 80s revival series. Other TV work in his vast resume includes The Man from Uncle, The Fugitive, Kojak, Maud, Archie Bunker's Place, and the 1985 miniseries adaptation of James A. Missioner's novel Space. Martin Balsam died in 1996. Born in England, Jenny Agutter had been acting professionally since the age of 12. She was only 24 when she landed the leading female role in the movie Logan's Run, and her career grew rapidly on both sides of the Atlantic from there. A 1997 two-part $6 million man story, guest shots on Magnum P.I., The Two Ronnies, The Equalizer, Murder, She Wrote, Dream On, Red Dwarf, Spooks, the show which was retitled MI5 for American consumption, and Call the Midwife. She's been in demand regularly on the big screen as well, appearing in An American Werewolf in London, Amazon Women on the Moon, Dark Man, Child's Play 2, The Avengers, and Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Who else is on this ship? Just Tim Russ, age 29, a couple of years into his acting career, and almost a decade before he became Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager. We'll be running into Tim a lot in other installments of Retrogram, because get a load of some of his early credits. Amazing Stories, Starman, Alien Nation, an earlier Twilight Zone episode in 1985. He was a series regular on the Sam J. Jones series The Highwayman, Freddy's Nightmares, and of course he'd later appear in both Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine in different roles. See Quest 2032, Supergirl, The Orville. I'm really just highlighting his genre roles there because his resume is huge. Tim Russ has been in everything. In fact, his previous role before this Twilight Zone episode was as the officer in Spaceballs who goes down to the planet and can't find sh**. Tim's fellow junior spaceman, Dennis Haskins, surely needs no introduction either. Just a year after this episode of Twilight Zone, he was cast as Principal Belding in a kid's sitcom called Good Morning, Miss Bliss, which underwent some minor casting changes and a title change to become Saved by the Bell. He's also appeared in Chips, The Greatest American Hero, Amazing Stories, The West Wing, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Mad Men, and How I Met Your Mother, and he pretty much owns the phrase, What is going on here? 
Wortham Krimmer guest starred in numerous episodes of The Paper Chase and had also appeared in Hill Street Blues, Remington Steel, St. Elsewhere, New Heart, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, and even Max Headroom prior to his appearance here. He would later take recurring roles on Days of Our Lives and One Life to Live, but fans of 90s syndicated sci-fi will remember him best as the utterly mad Emperor Cartagia from the fourth season of Babylon 5. Director Curtis Harrington had a lengthy Hollywood career as a director, writer, producer, and even a few gigs as an actor, both under his own name and under the pseudonym John Sebastian. In the 1960s and early 70s, he was busy with such classic B-movies as Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet, Queen of Blood, and Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. On the small screen, he directed episodes of Beretta, Logan's Run, Charlie's Angels, Wonder Woman, Hotel, Dynasty, and The Colbys. This Twilight Zone installment was his last TV directing credit. Curtis Harrington died in 2007. Now, when he's asked what happened to Earth, Knowles says greed, stupidity, a whole catalog of sins. He also mentions the depletion of the ozone layer, which is a very mid-1980s concern, and it was the impetus for an immediate chlorofluorocarbon ban that was largely successful in halting or at least slowing the damage to the ozone layer. But where this story is concerned, humanity had developed the technology to leave Earth about the time the damage was totally irreversible. Do you think we have that kind of time today? Just asking for a few billion friends. Wortham Krimmer has a line where he is talking about shadows, and if that's not an audition for his Babylon 5 role later, I don't know what is. A little bit of challenging sci-fi fantasy logic here. The spirits or souls or whatever of the last Earth-born humans have the power to change the atmosphere on a small scale for Knowles, and if they have the power to take over his body for a brief period, why do they need to convince him to surrender his body willingly? Smashing up the control panel drew attention to their intended host body and could have gotten him locked up where they couldn't use him. Why not just have him sleepwalk back to the building so they can take over? My gut feeling is that would make this too much of a horror story. The intention of the story is to convince Knowles and the audience to save Earth from being stripped for resources one last time. If you remove Knowles' free will from this scenario by possessing him, then he's a helpless victim. It's like the Earth is taking revenge on him. The point of the story is to change minds. It's a pity that this same wisdom about saving the only home humanity has seems to be evading elected officials over three decades later. If it's gone from common sense in 1987 to hotly debated political issue in 2019, then our generation is suddenly that generation that could have done something to save the planet, but didn't. A generation that perhaps has earned extinction in the process. You've got to love the very, very 80s set pieces for modern props. They have been in so many, many other shows ranging from V to Star Trek The Next Generation. And here's the funny thing. I went to Modern Props' website. All of these pieces can still be rented. If you are so inclined, for whatever reason, I'll include the links on the show page at thelogbook.com slash retrogram to some of the set pieces at Modern Props that were seen in this episode. You can call them up, tell them Retrogram sent you, and they'll pause for a moment and they'll say...
Werewolf, Episode 1. A nightclub, the 80s. A little bit of Mike and the Mechanics on the jukebox. And somebody, well, somebody is talking slowly through the club, alone, kind of freaking people out. He steps up to the bar and gets a drink. He's got some kind of a mark, a scar, almost like a pentagram, burned into the palm of his right hand. And it starts bleeding after he starts drinking. That's kind of unsanitary, if you ask me. A young man is getting ready to leave with his date, and you know, it kind of looks like somebody might be getting lucky tonight. Oops. He left his keys in the club. Gotta go back and get him. That's what happens when you're thinking with the wrong head, dude. See, if he was thinking with the right head, maybe he wouldn't have left his date in the parking lot standing by the car on a night with a full moon. She hears something growling and heads back for the club. She bumps into her date, who is on his way back out to her with his keys in hand, and she's kind of freaked out now. They get in the car, start the engine, and then something leaps on top of the car. Since he's driving a convertible, the soft top is no match for claws and fangs, and holy crap, never mind the soft top, something just broke through the windshield. Kind of looks like somebody might have run out of luck tonight. Meet Eric Cord. He's a grad student with a bright future, and a roommate who's acting a little weird. Eric comes home to find his roomie, Ted, sitting in a dark room with a gun. This generally is not a good sign. He's also got some silver bullets for his gun. This is probably an even worse sign. He hands the weapon to Eric with a warning. When I change tonight, you've got to shoot me with the silver bullets. Ted isn't talking about changing into something more comfortable. He holds up his right hand. There's a pulsating raised scar in the shape of a pentagram burned into it. Whatever this is, it's made Ted kill people. Eric won't do it, though. He's not going to shoot his friend, but he agrees to at least tie Ted to a chair so he can't move. <clears throat> Ted says it all started when he took a job working on a fishing boat captained by one Janos Scorzani. As it turns out, Scorzani was the werewolf who bit Ted, and ever since then, Ted has been isolating himself when he feels the change coming, trying to keep himself from killing again. That couple at the nightclub, that thing that was stalking them, the thing that killed them, that was Ted. He tells Eric that the only way to be free of the curse of the werewolf is to sever the original bloodline, kill whoever bit him. And Ted hasn't been able to find Scorsani again, and that's why he says Eric has to end his suffering. Eric still won't do it, though. So much for listening to that Ted talk. He sits through the night across the room from Ted, who's tied into his chair, until shortly after midnight. That's when Ted changes into a werewolf. Eric is startled enough to drop the gun, and he scrambles to get a grip on it again, but it's too late. By the time he has the gun in his hand again, Eric has been bitten. He kills Ted and crawls out of the door of their apartment, still holding the gun. Oh, hey, neighbors. <laughs> This looks bad, especially since dead Ted reverts to his human form. Now the whole thing just looks like a murder. Eric comes to in the hospital, under police guard. A glance in the mirror reveals that the bite wound on Eric's shoulder has miraculously healed. That's the good news. The bad news? You remember that bleeding scar on Ted's hand? Eric's got one of those now, too. You see, Ted didn't originate his werewolf bloodline. Scorzani did. Eric's girlfriend, Kelly, comes to visit. Oh, she was Ted's sister, by the way. And before Eric knows it, he's turned into a werewolf and... Oh, sorry, having a nightmare there. But nothing compared to the nightmares yet to come. Eric is charged with murder, and he's able to make bail. 
and Kelly, well, she was the only other person who knew about Ted's condition. The scar on Eric's hand is bleeding. He's about to change for the first time. Eric begs Kelly to take him to the self-storage unit where his late father's belongings are stored and lock him in there and drive away. Kelly returns the next morning where Eric has been discovered stark naked in the wreckage of a completely destroyed self-storage building. Eric learns that more mutilations happened last night. But if he was busy thrashing around in the self-storage unit, who was responsible? Eric wonders aloud if it's Scorzani. But when he starts talking about killing Scorzani to free himself from the curse, I, uh, yeah, buddy, you're on your own. In the meantime, all of this turning into a werewolf jazz means that Eric has missed a court date. Completely understandable to absolutely no one except Eric. A bounty hunter named Alamo Joe is hired to track Eric down. Joe's first stop is the self-storage place. He finds, well, a wad of werewolf fuzz. The hunt is on. Eric's doing some hunting of his own, looking for Captain Scorsani down at the docks. Scorsani finds Eric poking around his fishing boat, and he can instantly tell that Eric is, in his words, one of mine. Scorsani also knows why Eric's here, and his advice is for Eric to go kill himself. Or, hey, you could stick around, too, because tonight we hunt. Just join me, and we'll be our own little wolf pack. Nope. Eric runs back to Kelly and asks her to tie him into a chair so he can't hurt anybody, because you know that worked so well the last time. But Eric is not who she needs to worry about. Scorsani has tracked them down, and he takes Kelly with him. Eric is powerless to help. The next morning, someone's at the door. Hey, it's Alamo Joe Rogan. He drags Eric out to his truck and starts to secure him in the back. And, uh, hey, kid, your hand's bleeding. Eric begs Alamo Joe to leave him and find Kelly. She needs his help, and as for Eric, the change has begun. Alamo Joe has heard some pretty weird excuses in his bounty hunting career, and he's not about to listen to this, until Eric transforms into a werewolf and bursts out of the back of the truck. Joe draws his revolver and fires, and fires again, and whatever this hairy beast is that just escaped, it didn't even slow it down. In the woods nearby, Scorsani is dragging Kelly to her doom. His own transformation has begun. He dumps her in a shed, where she finds herself among the remains of his past victims. He sniffs. Someone else is nearby. It's another werewolf. The two beasts battle it out, knocking over an oil lamp that Scorsani had lit just before changing. Kelly manages to get out, just barely, as the shed burns down. Eric awakens in the morning. Scorsani is nowhere to be found. Kelly is okay, and she's glad Eric is okay, but this is as much of this situation as she can take. And Alamo Joe goes back home and starts loading his weapons with silver bullets. He doesn't care anymore that his quarry is an accused murderer who skipped bail. He knows he's dealing with a supernatural menace that has to be destroyed. The end, and also just the beginning. Werewolf was created and written by Frank Lupo. Frank was an 80s TV powerhouse. Werewolf is probably the shortest running and least well-known of the shows he created, which include a few you might have heard of. The A-Team, Hunter, Riptide, Raven. Well... Okay, I looked, and Raven's run was even shorter than Werewolf's upon closer inspection. As a writer, Frank wrote episodes of not only his shows, but Battlestar Galactica, BJ and the Bear, The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, Magnum P.I., The Greatest American Hero, Something is Out There, Walker, Texas Ranger, and Painkiller Jane. That Galactica gig turned into a run as one of the producers of Galactica 1980. His name may not be a household name on the level of Glenn A. Larson or Stephen J. Cannell, 
And I can't for the life of me tell you why not, because that resume is nothing to sneeze at. John J. York stars in Werewolf as Eric Cord. John had been paying his dues with guest roles in Dynasty, Hotel, Hunter, and Newhart before landing this as his first lead role. Now, after Werewolf, he went back to guest shots on Family Ties, Murder, She Wrote, 21 Jump Street, before landing his best-known role in 1991 as Malcolm Max Scorpio on General Hospital, where he has appeared in 600-odd episodes between 1991 and today. I mean, literally today as I'm recording this. That character also appeared on another daytime soap, Port Charles, and in between daily soaps, John has done guest appearances on Veronica Mars, The Wizards of Waverly Place, and Castle, to name just a few. He's probably got a big fan base now for whom Werewolf is just an answer to a trivia question. Lance Legault stars as Alamo Joe. Lance has appeared in Land of the Giants, Logan's Run, Wonder Woman, The Incredible Hulk, Battlestar Galactica, CBS 1979 pilot for a potential Captain America series, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, Voyagers, Knight Rider, Auto Man, Quantum Leap, Star Trek The Next Generation. That's just the stuff he's been in that Retrogram covers. We're not even counting all of his non-genre appearances there. Lance Legault is a mainstay of 70s and 80s TV. We will be seeing Lance and his work in many other installments of Retrogram, but for the record, he died in 2012. TV legend Chuck Connors stars as Janos Scorsini. If I need to explain to you that Chuck Connors was the star of The Rifleman, you may need to get off my lawn. No, I'm just kidding. This podcast is here to educate and entertain you, not to age shame you. As the star of ABC's Western The Rifleman between 1958 and 1963, Chuck Connors was a household name. He even hit the campaign trail for his friend Ronald Reagan when Reagan was running for governor of California because then you had double the Hollywood Western star power in one place. Chuck Connors went on to star in numerous other series, some of which didn't last too long. Arrest and Trial, Branded, Cowboy in Africa, to name just a few. As a guest star, he was seen in Night Gallery, Police Story, The Six Million Dollar Man, Walking Tall, Roots, Here's Lucy, Fantasy Island, The Love Boat, The Yellow Rose, Spencer for Hire, and Murder, She Wrote. On the big screen, he had roles in Soylent Green, Captain Nemo in the Underwater City, Airplane 2, Maniac Killer, and Last Flight to Hell. Once filming had started on Werewolf, word has it that Chuck wanted more money, a lot more money, to keep showing up as the recurring bad guy, and that was cash that neither Fox nor the show's producers could shake loose. As a result, there are quite a few episodes where Scorsani appears only as a werewolf, meaning they only had to hire a stuntman in prosthetic makeup. Toward the end, we find out that the originator of Eric's werewolf bloodline is someone else entirely, allowing the writers to kill off Chuck Connor's character once and for all. Man, don't ask them for lunch money. They will end you. As a result of all this, the pilot episode is one of only four appearances for Chuck Connors as the main villain of this show. We lost Chuck Connors to lung cancer in 1992. Now, Chuck's character, Janos Scorsani, is named after the vampire from the 1972 TV movie The Night Stalker, which, of course, was effectively the pilot for Kolchak the Night Stalker. The fact that one Scorsani was a vampire and the other was a werewolf is all that stands between Werewolf as a standalone series and Werewolf as a part of the Carl Kolchak cinematic universe. 
Frank Lupo would hardly be the first Hollywood showrunner to be influenced by the Night Stalker, though. Both that TV movie and the series that followed were huge influences on Chris Carter and Frank Spotnitz, writers who poured that influence into The X-Files. Now, the music for Werewolf is by Sylvester LeVay. Sylvester was a hot commodity in 80s TV scoring, especially if your show had the word wolf in the title. He composed the theme music and episode scores for 37 episodes of Airwolf's first two seasons. He also scored the delightful 1985 series Otherworld, as well as episodes of Probe, Something is Out There, the 80s revival of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Tales from the Crypt, and Hardball. Sounds like we'll be hearing from Sylvester in other installments of Retrogram. Now, our guest stars for this episode, Raphael Sabarge as Ted. His first TV appearance was on Sesame Street in 1969, when he was about four years old, and he was on Broadway at the age of 16. I could probably save time by listing things that Raphael Sabarge hasn't shown up in. If you're a fan of sci-fi and fantasy TV, you'll remember him as Dr. Archie Hopper and Jiminy Cricket from Once Upon a Time, or maybe as crewman Michael Jonas from one of my favorite Star Trek Voyager story arcs from that show's second season. He's been in movies such as Risky Business, Vision Quest, My Science Project, Independence Day, and Pearl Harbor, but the vast majority of his work has been on TV in shows such as Quantum Leap, L.A. Law, Murder, She Wrote, The Cosby Show, Nowhere Man, Dark Skies, Dharma and Greg, Charmed, Ally McBeal, Profiler, The Guardian, ER, Numbers, 24, Prison Break, Heroes, Dexter, Criminal Minds. Chances are, if you've watched it, odds are good he's been in it at least once. He's also done video game and anime voice work aplenty, including Avatar The Last Airbender, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, and Mass Effect and its sequels, to name just a few. Obviously, since we kill Ted in the pilot, this is Raphael's only werewolf appearance, but what an appearance. I've noticed that he shows up in a lot of roles where he is called upon to be a little unnerving, and where werewolf is concerned, mission accomplished, dude. Michelle Johnson looked familiar to me, and I couldn't quite place her until I looked her up on IMDb. Her debut role was as the Lolita-esque character who seduces Michael Caine in Blame It on Rio, one of those movies that was creepy enough in its day and really, really hasn't aged well. She was 17 when she was cast in that movie and was only a few years older here as Kelly. She went on to appear in Dallas, The Love Boat, Charles in Charge, Moonlighting, Tales from the Crypt, Melrose Place, Herman's Head, and The 90s Outer Limits. Ethan Phillips guest stars as Eddie Armando, a bail bondsman who takes Eric's car as collateral for his bond. He'll show up in two later episodes of Werewolf, but when he shows up again, his name is suddenly Eddie Armani. Now, at the time, Ethan was best known as Pete Downey, a character he played for five years on Benson. He had also put in guest appearances on Heart to Heart, Three's a Crowd, The Twilight Zone, and Hunter. Yet to come were guest shots on Star Trek The Next Generation, Doogie Howser, Murphy Brown, L.A. Law, Platypus Man, Homeboys in Outer Space, From the Earth to the Moon, and, of course, his seven-year stint as Neelix on Star Trek Voyager, where he had some big scenes with Raphael Sabarge. It's a small universe. British-born actor and director David Hemmings was behind the camera for this episode, one of eight werewolf episodes he would direct. 
His directing work had a lot of overlap with shows created and produced by Frank Lupo. The A-Team, Stingray, Raven, and Hardball, as well as episodes of Airwolf, Hawaiian Heat, Magnum P.I., The New Mike Hammer, and Marker. David Hemmings also directed the pilot episodes of both In the Heat of the Night and Quantum Leap, so he apparently had something of a reputation as a director who could launch a show. As an actor, David appeared in Barbarella, Spy Game, Gangs of New York, and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, with TV appearances in Airwolf, The A-Team, Stingray, Tales from the Crypt, Northern Exposure, Kung Fu, The Legend Continues, and Waking the Dead. For the record, your playlist for this episode from the nightclub includes Silent Running by Mike and the Mechanics and The Future So Bright I Gotta Wear Shades by Tim Buck Three. Now, those songs might be part of the reason why Werewolf has never made it to DVD. In 2009, Shout Factory had announced a box set release of the complete series and then delayed it, delayed it some more, and finally announced that it would never happen due to a breakdown in negotiation for the music rights, something which has torpedoed quite a few DVD releases of TV shows. Werewolf has shown up from time to time on the cable channel Chiller, so you might be able to catch it there. The opening scene in the parking lot. Can you even explain this to anyone now? Because we live in a world where the modern generation of drivers have grown up with remote key fobs that, aside from letting you into the correct locked vehicle, also have panic buttons that probably would have scared off a werewolf. Or maybe pissed it off, I don't know. It's like watching some old 70s or 80s show where someone eavesdrops on a phone conversation by quietly picking up another phone on the same landline somewhere else in the house. How do you explain that to the cell phone generation? And worse yet, how do you explain it to them that they really don't have much more privacy on a cell than whoever was on that other landline phone in that scenario I just came up with? The pilot episode of Werewolf was very stylishly directed. The show is incredibly 80s, but in a good way, kind of a comfort food way. I recognize plenty of directorial and lighting tricks inspired by sources as diverse as Wes Craven and Miami Vice. Rick Baker did the werewolf makeup, including the various stages of transformation, and that means it's pretty scary at times. There were a few scenes that reminded me in a good way of Tobe Hooper's direction on the pilot episode of the really unnerving UPN series Nowhere Man. If there's one element that I would have changed in this pilot, I'm afraid it's Sylvester LeVay's music. It's either spot on in nailing the mood, or it is so far away from what it should be that it takes me right out of the story. As pilots go, this is really good. Here's a fun fact. I had never watched a single frame of Werewolf before I watched it for Retrogram. Even though this show premiered on my 15th birthday, the town I grew up in didn't have a Fox affiliate until the early 90s. And I know that because I ended up working there as my first TV job, so there's no way I could have seen this when it first came out. Since it was an early Fox show, I was expecting... Well, I was expecting cheese at best. But it's intense in all the right places. It sets up a nice new take on The Fugitive. So, you know, if you're not, if you're familiar with The Fugitive, and who isn't, Eric is Kimball, Scorsani is the one-armed man, and Alamojo is obviously going to be this show's Gerard. So I'm actually looking forward to continuing to make Werewolf's acquaintance. Very nicely done. My parting thought is, really, that this is one of the few times that Fox would give one of its sci-fi or genre shows 29 episodes worth of a chance. And that's a shame. 
two pilots and two episodes of a dead show walking, though it was a show that would prove to be undead before long. Kind of appropriate for the Twilight Zone, don't you think? 1987 was one of those upheaval years for me, and as much as it pains me to admit it, I did not see Star Cops or Werewolf until long after they had come and gone. I literally didn't see Werewolf until I watched it for this podcast. Star Cops, I think I can be excused for since it didn't air on local PBS and really only got a few showings in the States, period. I discovered it on DVD later, and holy cow is it hard to get your hands on the DVDs now. Though I'm all for making sure that the parties involved get their money, it's a relief that every episode of Star Cops can be found on YouTube for those who want to discover it. It really is one of my all-time favorite UK sci-fi shows. And wow, I enjoyed Werewolf more than I thought I would. Add to that a really nice Twilight Zone, chased down by a Twilight Zone that was perhaps trying too hard to be Twilight zone The summer of 87 had some sweet viewing choices. I'm sorry I missed it. I'm glad I've caught up with it now. It's hard for me to not stick with Star Cops as my go-to favorite from this week, but the truth is, there really isn't a stinker in the bunch. It may seem like a weird thing to look back on with such wonderment, but these shows brightened up a summertime that happened many years before Netflix was around to drop Stranger Things in our laps as an unexpected summer favorite. Conventional TV wisdom used to be that a new show that landed a summertime slot wasn't expected to make it. They were burning it off. People were going to be outside doing things, not watching TV, at least in the States. July sweeps was where shows went to die an inglorious death. But maybe it was also where shows went if they were smarter than what was on the air during the big November, February, and May sweeps. And in that context, maybe the summer of 87 wasn't so bad after all. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find more of his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by Philip Gross, also licensed under Creative Commons. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to thelogbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you love Retrogram, become one of them. Every little bit helps keep thelogbook.com and its podcasts and video casts going. You can be like Kevin and Darwin and Mark and Javier and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash thelogbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies from our store at redbubble.com slash people slash thelogbook, including brand new designs to show your love for Retrogram. Or you can order all sorts of things through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. And hey, if you haven't binge-watched the newest version of The Twilight Zone, sign up for a free week of CBS All Access through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps The Logbook and Retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. 